out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the monochrome set, because last week I spoke to their one consistent member. It is, or was, no, it is, Bid, to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all the other groovy stuff. And uh, just to say, they have a new album that has just come out, 2022, All Hallow Tide, that we speak about at the end of this interview, well, towards the back end. So um, do take notes, I will test you at the end to make sure that you were paying attention. Just to warn you, it does contain adult themes. So, with that excitement, um, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Bid, it's over to you. Well, um, I didn't start listening to music until I came to this country, which would have been around about 1967. And so, and I didn't really start to listen to music seriously until secondary school. So when I was about 12. Right. Came to it a little bit late. And then really, um, I started listening to what everyone else was listening to at the time, this boys school. And it was really kind of uh, uh, prog rock early prog rock, the precursor of that with, uh, and, you know, early Yes and Genesis and Black Sabbath, and all that sort of thing. I wasn't really, so that's what I got into. Right. Were you at boarding school? No, a grammar school. Just a grammar school. Yeah. And um, my awakening from that was uh, hearing the Velvet Underground. Right. And that, that's, that's around about the time when I actually kind of started writing songs anyway. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Were you? Did you come from a at all musical family? Did it? Did any uh, of your parents, or did you have an older brother or sister who said, "Listen to this"? No, not really. We, we just kind of all. Once I got into grammar school, we just all shared records, and we we, you know, those were the days when you had a vinyl record, an LP, and that would last you six months. Yes, well, absolutely. Them. You you sort of, I do. I remember buying that first David Bowie single, which I think was probably 60, 67 pence, and it took yeah. ages to save up for it. And you were definitely going to play the B side, and we're kind of grateful because you know it had changes and Velvet Goldmine on the B side. So yeah. we thought, oh, this is great. We're we're doing well. So when did I mean? Because it's funny enough. I'm my older brother was really into prog rock, so I you know the work of Yes Genesis, Wishbone Ash, Barkley James yeah. Harvest, they were all ensconced in my brain. Even the solo work of Rick Wakeman is there as well. So yeah. um, <laughs> which now you know it's um no actually it still sounds awful today actually, yeah. but sometimes it can be quite good but I do like you know I must admit the early Black Sabbath and early Deep Purple are quite fascinating. Well, that, that, that was the period when before they became what what they knew they were when they were just really Black Sabbath didn't know what they were doing and that's what made them interesting. They, yes. weren't, they weren't playing heavy metal because they didn't know what it was and a lot of the early Purple stuff I mean just just post psychedelic uh, the early classic lineup they were playing quite a wide variety of things before they decided they were hard rock. Yes. So this was an interesting period where people were, were experimenting with sounds. And then once they slid into that sound and that's what made them successful, they became less interesting. Yeah. And I it sort was, of, yeah. It, no, it's it's interesting with Black, uh, Deep Purple because I was having a little bit of a kind of rummage around <laughs> listening to some of their kind of work. I don't know why. It's because they've got a new album out and, and you know, and they've been releasing albums and, and you listen to it and you think it just doesn't, 
there's all the bits are here, but it doesn't really work. So then I went back to my period of, you know, burn and fireball and those kind of moments. And then there was a bit before that, the early, the late seven, late sixties, early seventies, where they had a completely different uh, singer, and they were doing some kind of like experimentate, experimental yeah. kind of proggy stuff, and you know. That was the book of Taliesin. Yes, and um, the second album or something like that, and that was really interesting. That was that was breaking out of American psychedelia and going into something interesting. That was almost, you know, that the era of of the Pretty Things as well. It's it's people. Pretty Things were almost um, proto prog rock, and and that was kind of interesting as well. And it was just people experimenting, and that that's that's great. You know, that period when people don't know what they're doing. That's really, you know, what I love. Yeah. And what I found always interesting on a sort of personal level was that the lead singer kind of eventually gets like told you're no longer the lead singer and disappears and no one has a you know, clue where he is and if he's still alive. And But then, you know, I'm thinking, you know, that lovely moment thinking that, you know, he is alive somewhere and he has this great secret that, you know, he'll never tell anybody that I, I was the singer on the first three Deep Purple albums, you know, until yeah. I got kicked out. But, you know, this person just kind of disappears <laughs> into the sunset after being told, sorry, Ian Gillen's going to be on, you know, going to be our main yeah. man and we're going to be heavy rock. Yeah. And off he just wanders, never to be seen again. I think they said he went to be a, a teacher, but I don't know. He could be, a, you know, he could be a neighbour with an amazing yeah. secret. So, yeah. so <laughs> Jesus, Deep Purple. I never thought I'd be talking about Deep Purple so much. But yes, so then, so are you talking the mid-70s when you, the grammar school period of sort of um, Velvet Underground? Yeah, it was around about, I mean, I came into it late, obviously, so it was around about 74, 75, when I started getting into the Velvets and Lou Reed, as he was then, Circle Rock and Animal. And um, that was really also when the period when the likes of Yes and Genesis had ceased to me to become interesting, because it was just about their musicianship, I thought. You know, it was less to do with the songs and, and the thing that came out of it. So, but also for, for anybody learning instruments at, at that point, it was just, it was unattainable to be like Steve Howe or those great musicians from the prog rock period, but just to actually listen to something which was just powerful, simple stuff. Um, like the Velvets, and it, it, it sort of inspired me to write and it probably inspired an awful lot of other people to write as well. Yes, and your own cultural background, Obviously, is this from the Middle East, Far East? Far East. But right. In, in, you know, when I was young, it was in Calcutta, east, right. east of India. Um, you know, we didn't really listen to music. It just wasn't, wasn't part of the culture particularly. So it's not really, you'd be surprised that it's not such a big thing, you know, outside of Europe necessarily to, um, to listen to, you know, pop music or rock music, you know, at that period. Yes. So, so I came to it and it was a bit, I took to it quite easily. I mean, the, the first things that, that I would hear would just be Top of the Pops and Hendrix on Top of the Pops and that kind of thing. And then, but, but you know, as, as a young adult, I would, uh, got into prog rock first and then got into more to do with, uh, aside from the Velvets, it was like late 60s American garage music, you know, which... Uh, the Pebbles compilations and things. Yes, like that. the great compilation with yeah. all those bands like the Sonics, and yeah. um, yes, those ones. 
which I can't remember any of the names now. But yes, I know those those must must kind of acquire uh, records actually. And then the Stooges that came along yeah, and stuff like that. So when did you write your first song? When did this kind of come about? Well, I guess it was around seventy five that I started writing, or late seventy five, seventy six. And the funny thing is. One of the first proper songs I ever wrote is called Inside Your Heart. And it was just recently covered about two or three years ago by a band called Luna, this American band, and it's become really popular. And I think it's really weird. I wrote that when I was just in, still at school, you know, and it would just have so happened that, you know, Terry Red being that kind of company, they want to, anything that I have, they wanted to just release it and see what went. And it just got picked up by this band. It's just weird. To have that happening is it's, it's almost as strange as having Iggy Pop cover He Shrank, you know, which is a, a song that I must have written in late 76. So that, that's kind of strange as well. That, that must be even, yes, it must be like 45 years ago. Yeah. Sort of thinking that was a different time. So when did you decide you were going to form a band? When did this kind of happen? I think it was really in um, 70, early 77, when I was in a band with uh, Leicester Square, Andy Warren and Adam Ann called The B-Sides. And although I never made a conscious decision, it was just, when I look back at it, in retrospect, it was obvious that I was never gonna do anything else. I'd kind of decided around about that time that I was just, yeah, not gonna continue in academia. I mean, I left school when I was 17 halfway through doing my A-levels and I just bummed around for a couple of years and then the monochrome set started. And yes. Did yeah. your parents think, oh my God, this has been the biggest disaster. We've left Calcutta, come to London and now <laughs> he's left at 17. This is this yes. is not what we expected at all. Oh yes, yes, but they shouldn't have done it, should they? <laughs> if they wanted me to stay at college, they should have left me in India. Right. Yeah, good one. Yes, you could give that one back to them, couldn't you? So then with the, with that scene, who else was part of it? Was Marco Peroni there and a woman called Dorothy no, Max? No, uh, uh, Max was there um, at the beginning of 77 when we were we were in the B-sides and Max was a, was just started learning how to play drums and her, her name comes from the Pearl Maxwin kit, which she used. <laughs> and... Um, and there was just a lot of people kind of in bands with each other. It's almost like a, a school bands, but outside of school. And we just started, the monochromes started early 78, and we were rehearsing in a in a squat in a particular part of Brixton where a lot of other bands were, were living in squats. You know, they were all at art college or various other colleges, and they weren't going to college. They were in bands, you know, because <laughs> those, those are the days when you were paid to go to college. Yes. You didn't get a. Uh, you didn't have to borrow from a bank to go to college. You were paid by the state to go to college. So what they did is they kind of lived on that, lived off that money with a bit of, um, uh, you know, that there was that. It's probably still going that. That um, uh, I don't know agency that gave gave young people work, you know, sort of part time work, and they lived for free in squats, and they were all in bands. So there were a few bands sort of in that area. Yes. And we just kind of all started at the same time. And it was a very, very lucky because that was in a period when you could pick up a hardcore following very early on, just within five or, or ten gigs. So we had a hardcore following of 50, which is, sounds like nothing. But nowadays, young bands start and they go for 20 years and they don't, don't manage <laughs> to get anything because everything has changed for the worse. You know, four bands for 
any songwriter now, it's very, very difficult for them to build up a following. And then there, there was also the um, Cosy Enemy and the Sounds of Monday Maker. They were the forums, musical forums coming out every week that, that, that focused young people's attention and interest on what was coming up. Yes, that's true. This is true. Because it's interesting. I just watched this film which has come out about Max's Kansas City from New York. Yeah. And it and, and it's so much about community. You know, I suppose it is this thing that you you create some sort of community and a bit like what you were saying, um, you know, everyone gets a band and it's like, yeah, great, play. There's a venue, <laughs> people yeah. are gonna go and see you and yeah. you'll get some traction, you'll be able to sort of do this for a bit. No one's really thinking too much about the long-term future, and no one's gonna think that anyone one's going to be interested in watching a film about this in 45, 40 years time. But, you know, obviously it does start to build and then people start thinking, oh, I've got a record label and now I'm going to be able to, um, yeah, sell a few singles. And we're all living in squats in New York because it's so cheap and dirty and down, down at Hill. But you, yes, but the other thing that you mentioned, which was interesting, was that gatekeepers. Oh, we love the gatekeepers, didn't we? Because you had the, you know, there was the three weekly music papers with huge circulations, yeah. DJs that kind of curated these amazing shows that people listen to. So, yeah, you're right. And then, you know, every little town, city in the UK had an alternative indie night. I think that's what they called them back then. So, yeah. you know, you would get a crowd of people who would go along just because that's what you did and you spent 150 yeah, to see three, three bands. You'd have live reviews every week um, and you'd have reviews of, of like uh, uh, cheapo plastic, those floppy singles, you know. And, um, and, and also apart from the, the weekly um national press you had this huge amount of fanzines which were coming out all the time much more local but just just as popular in their own way yes and it just focused people's attention on the scene and there's no focus at all at the moment the internet is too big and there is nowhere to go to find out what the new interesting band is nowhere at all even myspace acted as a kind of focus when it you know before it all felt fell to pieces but right now there's absolutely nothing at all. So, I mean, it, it doesn't affect us now, but I feel quite bad about young, talented people. You'll never get to hear of them, you know, because yes. unless it becomes more localised, and which I think it will next year, myself. Um, yeah, it's, it's difficult. Very difficult. Mm. Oh, no, I, I gave so much of my, you know, so much faith in John Peel. He created his show and then I just assumed that this was the best reggae track, this was the best African yeah. track, this was the best rock indie, you know. So we all embraced the, the work of the Bundu Boys or Thomas McFuma and the Black Sun Limited because, you know, yeah. John, it felt like John had done all the work and he said, oh, have a listen to this, you know, and he went, oh, thank you very much. So it made life strangely simple. But then, yes, you get your John Peel session in 79, which is a bit like the blessing from the Pope, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I mean, I, I think it was really, we, we were by then fairly well known and it was fairly obvious, I guess, that we were going to get some kind of record deal somewhere. And we got it with uh, Rough Trade. And um, yeah, it was great to do John Peel. And it, it gave us a bit of experience in the studio as well, recorded and made available BBC, which we, we went just a few months ago. We did, we went back there. So that was very nice. Um, yeah, so so if, if you were decent, you were going to go somewhere. That's the way it is. Yes. Okay. And, and sort of 
interesting time because we'd had the the dreaded punk period. Well, not the dreaded, but you know, it, it quickly comes really quite embarrassing, doesn't it? And then the post-punk period. So you, you know, how did you sort of navigate that next period when you sort of realize one scene is finishing and then you're having to go into another scene and another decade? Because often a lot of artists struggle with this, don't they? They they kind of like they're a little bit lost. How did you you know, deal well, with we that. Were, we kind of were just ourselves and we were we were more considered new wave or art school rock. We weren't really, the, 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 the phrase post-punk hadn't come about. There was punk and then there was new wave and some people were called art school. And actually the, the punk was really, uh, the phrase punk was only used for very hardcore bands. Actually, I mean, I, I can remember even in NME, the damned being called new wave band, but not a punk band, but they obviously were a punk band. So it's like anything that didn't look the part wasn't punk, you see. But I mean, we carried on because there was a whole load of other bands that were like us. Yes. That, that were really just, um, if you like, kind of experimental pop almost, you know, like the, like the, the, the you know, the interesting period, Blondie's interesting period was in the first two albums where they were very experimental pop I think before they became outright commercial did you include parallel lines in that or were you just that's <laughs> possibly yeah but, but definitely I mean, not eat to the beat <laughs> no but it's it's uh it's just you know, some people would, I, I'm, and you could actually become quite successful being wire for example why why had the same management as us and you could actually become a, a successful album band which they became and we became a successful album band, in fact. Yes. People, people say we, we didn't sell records. We actually sold a whole load of records. But most of the records were in the indie charts, and the indie charts weren't allowed in the main charts. If, we, if we'd have been allowed to break out of our pen and, and populate the, the, uh, the main charts, so the, the, those first two or three Rough Trade singles would have been in the top 20. But oh my that's yes the, that's the way it's written the history is written like that you know? and what was um, how did you get to meet Leicester Square Thomas well Leicester Square was in the b-sides with Adam and I think that they'd gone both gone to Hornsey School of Art together and it was they were advertising for a bass player and Andy and I had been to school together we were still at school together Andy um answered the advertisement and then I was asked in to be I think Adam didn't want to play guitar, so I came in to be another guitar player. Then Adam became ill. And then in that period when he was away, we started writing monochrome set songs. Right. My God, there was so much talent and so much creativity at that time. There was a lot of, a lot of really talented people, yeah. yeah. It was incredible. I didn't realise Adam was so amazing on um, graphic design as well and uh, yeah, fly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, mean, I mean, I think he's still a very... He has health issues. But and and he has to be uh, deal with them. But he is still a really talented person, and he's yes. also you know it's like you never lose your talent. Morrissey is still very very talented, despite what people think of him. I still think he's very talented, and you you just never lose that. You know you know it's not never going to go. In fact, I'm writing a book about it right now. Um, so where the talent comes from and, and how it how it comes into being and things like that. Yes, it's an interesting one though. That that thing about talent, because so it's almost like 
I did have this interview with someone the other night about this a bit. And he was talking because he'd really gone from his music period to because he had health, health issues to a lot of yoga and a lot of sort of self-reflection and talking about the, the glow from one's heart. So he was saying, well, those albums were made at that time by the, those bands or that artist because there was something quite amazing and spiritual about it without using the God word. But yeah. then the latter work is not so amazing doesn't have that magic and it's almost like they don't have that inner glow anymore there's something not quite beautiful about them so there's not anything magical like it was when they had that magic moment what I I, yeah i think that it's i don't wanna, you know i don't want to start promoting your book before it comes out but i explain the whole thing where the artistic identity comes from how it comes into being where, where it sort of where it resides in the body it's an it's an alternate consciousness which you don't have any connection with and i described the whole thing and the whole thing about being an artist is self-management and you don't learn self-management until you're much older it's very very difficult because when you're young you don't know where all that comes from and you can so easily destroy it and it's a question of actually managing yourself and managing that that piece of you, which is creating all those things, knowing it's there. It's very important to know that it's there and it will always be there. It's in there in everybody. When you're in your teens, when you go through a period of um, great great creativity and it's exercising a part of your brain, which is to do with lateral thinking in times of danger. Right, but do you think, is this the part that when you die, suddenly your body is too, it's lighter. Is that your soul leaving your body? Did you cover that in your book? Um, not exactly. I mean, I kind of almost went through that because, because of the aneurysm I had. Um, no, not exactly. This is, this is a bizarre part of the brain which develops from that hidden part of the brain. It's a hidden part of the brain. Lateral thinking in times of danger is completely cut off from the rest of the brain because it cannot be influenced by emotions at all. It's, it's a very primal part of the brain and it's to do with survival. And it's very rarely used, but you go through a period of exercising that part of the brain when you're in your teens. And then when you leave your teens, you often just relax that part because you're not really gonna use it an awful lot unless you're actually living in the, in the jungle. <laughs> you're not really gonna be thinking how am I going to get out of this situation with a crocodile because I mean you have to have a completely divorced part of your brain that can deal with situations like that without panicking mm -hmm. this thing art comes from a vastly extended autonomous section of, the, of that part of the brain and it's when it, it when you are already artistic and you're already doing something and you're quite good at art or you're quite good at music and you start just exercising that part of the brain and it gives you nice ideas because it's also exercising its own ability and it starts to grow and you start to like it growing and you enter into a kind of bond. And with certain people who become artists, that bond becomes a vocation and it grows into something very, very big. With most people, they just relax it and they don't ever go back to it. But with artists, they grow this um, creature into something very, very big.
it's a pretty rare thing for anybody to do. And it's particularly rare to become a talented artist. There's one thing being an artist, another thing being talented. Mm. There's nothing, nothing worse than being a committed artist and not being very good. <laughs> that, that's because that's your life is kind of destroyed because you're, you're now devoted your whole life to being an artist. So you have to be kind of good. Although, you know, there's, the world is a big place. So I, I say don't stop doing what you're doing because there's always going to be a few thousand people in the world who are going to like what you're doing. So keep going. Yes. But, but the, the idea of self-management just sounds like it's going to be too self-conscious and too knowing. No, and no because it, it isn't really. Because all you've got to know is you be conscious of this being inside you which is always going to be there and it will come out when it, when it wants to, when it, it wants to write about you. It writes and it's inspired by you and your life. You're the actor in this movie. And if you sit around and do nothing, a lot of the problem with bands who have, who have had a lot of success in their early years, first or second album, yes, the following albums aren't always that good because their experience is just being on the road. And that's what the creature has to write about. You have to actually, and you can't just live in a live the lifestyle of a millionaire in a mansion on a beach because you're not doing anything. You're not doing anything exciting. You're not doing anything worth writing about. You actually have to live. That's why a lot of stuff which has been written, yeah, when you're living in the Lower West Side in New York in the late 70s, <clears throat> you're going to have a lot to write about. Yeah. You know, and you're living in Manchester, you're living in London and stuff. You've just got a lot to write about because your life is going to be very interesting. You know. Yeah, but I just think there's something that sometimes, with with you know the example of, of say Morrissey for, you know there were there was something kind of beautiful and there was something sensitive and there was something really you know he was so in touch with his emotions during that 80s period and some of it the 90s, that it just has a sort of vibrational quality that is fantastic, whereas there's a, there's a feeling of bitterness there and then sort of well, anger that that, yeah. that that comes out in a very sort of lyrically quite a clunky way and you think yeah this I, is I, this is the poetry's kind yeah, of gone yeah i think i think the thing is it's it's knowing that it's there knowing that it's there and knowing firstly the most importantly you did not write any of those songs the consciousness does not write any of the songs something else does it uses your musical technique it uses your ability as a poet your lexicon your culture your life but you're not writing those songs something else is so once once you realize that you become a bit more humble about what you are and it it doesn't have any political views it has no moral views it's just writing a script you know to to be sung along to music it's not you that's the genius it's something else inside you that's a genius once you realize that you kind of lose a bit of that um uh, big-headedness. Right. You see what I mean? It's it, it, it's really quite important to like. For example, I just recently wrote about the artist called De Kooning, who's who's a who's a Dutch um, American kind of you know a weird painter. He used to paint weird stuff, but he in the last ten years of his life he has serious dementia. And he couldn't really function properly, but he carried on painting. That part of his brain was was just insulated against the degeneration of the rest of it. It's a remarkable thing. I'll go into the whole thing about why that might be the case. Mm. But that part of the brain carried on painting, painting. It wasn't him anymore that was doing the painting. 
see so so what you you have to see that happening with other people to know that it's something else extremely powerful thing inside you which is doing all this stuff it's not god it's not you although you're you're contributing to it by being a better musician able to play certain things on guitars just expanding its ability to create expanding your own vocabulary your ability to 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 write um to summarize or pray see what you've written down into the necessary four standards stanzas of lyrics is quite difficult yes. when you look at it from the point i mean being a lyric writer is an extremely difficult art form much more difficult than poetry because you actually have to make it rhyme <laughs> and you have to get it to fit into a certain length of syllabic length and you've got to put in a whole concept into just four verses it's a very, very difficult thing to do. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And that's and what you... I mean. Yeah, about management. It's 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 managing all these things and getting off getting off your high horse and actually being writing songs about yourself and humanity and not preaching to people. No, absolutely. I mean, did you sort of feel just just pre with the you know, like I was obsessed with Bowie, so it was interesting his life and quite a few decades and years, you know, some pretty forgettable albums and until he died and everyone thought he was wonderful. But he's like, no, actually, that was something really tricky. But then, you know, there, there was a moment with heathen reality where it's like, oh, yeah, that's good. Then he disappears, comes back with the next day. And then Black Star, did you, when you, with your theories about creativity, how do you look at Black Star as a, as a work? Maybe he finally had something to write about, you know, and it kick-started that thing. Because, you know, when you spend an awful lot of your life and you're just jet-setting around the world and not really essentially doing anything interesting, there's nothing to write about. Okay. You know, what, what can you say? You can't say anything. You just, you know, you've got everything. <laughs> so it's very difficult to say because I've never been in a position where I can jet set around the world and never worry about anything. But that's good because you just end up being a better artist, you know. Yes, but I there mean, is the there is there is the pressure that actually probably the bank account might not be looking so good, and you've experienced this, and now you're possibly experiencing the other. Because I remember with the prog rock guys, you know, they bought the stately home, they bought all those cars, and then suddenly one day it was like, oh, actually, there's no more money, and then obviously yeah. you start reforming the band. But there is this kind of the party's over. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, it's that the party's over. The problem is if you, if you got to the point where you're bankrupt and suddenly you realise you need to write some good songs, um, it's too late, <laughs> you know, because you've got nothing to write about. I mean, I would just say live, you know, live, find a way of living or give up. You've got to live and you've got to do some interesting things. Go, do, you know, travel around the world on a bicycle or something like that go and meet some new people, have some new experiences, do something interesting. I mean, the aneurysm that I had gave me two or three albums, you know, so it was it was a good thing from an artistic point of view to have that experience because it just gives you something to write about, you know. Well, probably far and far. So when was your aneurysm? That was in 2010. My God, my yeah. God. So that was a shock. But just before that aneurysm experience, because because obviously, you know, the one thing that we all suddenly experience is kind of 
tricky health moments you're sort of again you know for having done this show for a long time you know most bands do have that kind of five-year narrative they get together you're really quite a classic here aren't you john peel session yeah. singles first album things going really well bit of traction and then you follow it up with a couple more albums mm. but then you know there's that kind of the shift the next wave of 16 to 18 year olds come along and it's often you know having something to sing about did you have that experience when you made the lost weekend which is kind of the mid 80s album um the lost weekend was a little bit strange because most of that album was actually written in and recorded in 1983 and it was not released until 1985 because it was a very very long period of negotiation with Warner Brothers so actually it's listed as a 1985 album, but you know the first two albums were both released in 1980. The first album was actually a product of about two two years worth of writing. The first two years of the band, which is very typical of a lot of bands. Yes, the first albums is often really very good. Then um, uh, Eligible Bachelors, we're doing a Eligible Bachelors show in about three weeks' time. That was in nine, released in 1982, and then really Lost Weekend should have been released probably in early 84. So it wasn't really a big, it was a different sound to the album, but I don't think it was that different really in a way. Yes. Um, because you 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 often sort of mixed or changed producers. Did that make yeah. quite a difference to the to the Not, recording process? Not really, no. There, there was more money involved in, in Lost Weekend. So, and I learned quite a lot through the guy who did it, was John Porter, who, who was in Roxy Music in the very early days, and he also produced The Smiths. I learned quite a lot about production from him. Um, and then, you know, in 1985, it just felt it was a, in retrospect, I would say it was a mistake to, to split up. Because we, we, we didn't feel as if we were getting anywhere, but actually around the country, we had a really, really big following. And it just, we were just too influenced by the press. Oh dear. And that was a big <laughs> mistake because we got really bad reviews for that. It didn't really matter to our fans. They just loved it, you know, and we could have easily carried on. But anyway, we, you know, we took a, a, a break off and I went into the fashion business with my wife. And then we got back together in 1990 because we'd always been, we'd always sold a load of records in Japan. We didn't really know about it. So we got together for that and we just stayed together for about five years and we did some fantastic tours of Japan. And then in the nineties were bad for everyone. It was just very, very difficult to get gigs, uh, very difficult to get agents. And this was almost pre-internet days. And, yes. You know, so the internet hasn't really actually been going on for that long. People forget that. And it was very, very difficult to get anywhere because there was no longer really the forums of the weekly press so much. They're, they'd already become very commercial and either, you know, they collapsed or they'd just become... I mean, nowadays, you know, it, it wasn't like that in those days, but nowadays you don't get a five-star review unless you're on a big company. Yes. For a smaller company, you automatically get one star taken off. <laughs> so that's and that's the way it used to be in Japan, but then it started to that kind of bribery, shall we say, infiltrated the rest of the world, and it was just not not so good anymore. So for us, it's just um, it's lovely being on this German label, and it's lovely being able to play around the world. You know? Oh yes, I mean it's kind of interesting because that thing that I don't know there was there must be something about 
when a band finishes, I suppose the fans who have been supporting them have also got their own journey in life and have got yeah. to focus on that. And there isn't that slight, people aren't going, still not particularly going out, but there's a sort of length of time where there's a sort of an appreciation of what happened. And I'm not talking just about rose-tinted sunglasses. It's often a bit like, actually, that was much better. The one thing I've realised that some of the scenes... And I didn't even hear all the, obviously, I didn't all hear all the 80s stuff during the time. But going back and listening to a lot of it, it's actually a lot better than I remember. So um, that's Gee, kind of interesting. It really was. It really is good. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it was. It was a fantastic time. Actually. And, yeah. uh, and, and the other thing, you know, one is a bit fickle. So there's like certain scenes that you thought, no, I'm not really into golf. I'm possibly not into new Paisley. I'm possibly not into the electronic stuff. But then decades later, you listen to some of it and think, no, that's absolutely fantastic. I shouldn't have, I should have been less uptight and just gone with the flow rather than yeah. blocking it all so, so yeah. dramatically. Did you feel a little bit, you know, your time in the 80s when you split up, when you sort of realised looking back, did you feel like, oh God, we could have really done a lot more no. during that? No, I don't think we, we, we've never been a band that could have been uh, worldwide commercial successes. We're just not like that, you know. We're not like, um, we're not like Kentucky Fried Chicken or Big Mac. We're not like that, you know. We, we're not going to appeal. That, they're, they're, let's put it this way. They're very, very successful foods. They're just not the, the best food you can buy. No, definitely not. Do you know no. what I mean? So, no. so we, we can't actually sell records to people who buy Taylor Swift. <laughs> it's not possible. So we, we just produce higher class cuisine for people who want it. You know? But then you have that exciting, as, as we're talking about food, we all now realise that ultra-processed food is bad for you and actually it's kind of getting back to sort of more vegetables and grains and rice and stuff like that and buckwheat and pearl barley, which we've all suddenly loved because we all sort of have health issues when we get in our 50s, which is one of those amazing cliches, but does happen, doesn't it? So we do start to appreciate better things. And I think musically, it's surprising how a lot of the bands from that period have been, re have been discovered by kids who weren't even born then. So you must be picking up a new fan base of some sure. description. We are, we are, and I love it. I love it. That's the one thing that I really love, uh, seeing young faces in the audience. Absolutely love that, yeah. Um, yeah, so, and and the secret for us is to kind of not be too influenced by what people expect to see of us, what people expect from us. I think what people expect from us is something different each time, a little bit. They want us to be inspired and they want us to change continually slightly. So I'm not interested at all. Although I love playing the old records because being on stage is something completely different. It's just about entertainment and showbiz, but we're not gonna make another album full of He's Franks and Ina Symphonies. I can't write songs like that anymore anyway. I've just changed as a person, but it's just try to do something interesting and of artistic quality. Yes, absolutely. And did you, I mean, with your health scare, did that, was that quite a period of your life that you had to deal with? It's not really, well, uh, people say, well, did, did you reassess life and stuff? No, I didn't really. You know, I just I nearly died and that's it. So <laughs> you just carry on. It just changed me physically. 
it, 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 it sort of calmed me down and made me more, more reflective. And I think really it made me a better songwriter. Um, and, and I learned an awful lot about the, the whole writing process. So it was actually been really, really good for me. Yes. And how did you all, because you're on this German label that seems to be um, busily sort of signing lots of English bands from a certain period. Yeah. How, how did they discover you or who? How I, did... I think that they all, all, always knew we were around and they, at some point, they must have made a decision. Yeah, let's let's speak to them, see if we can do something with them. And they just turned up one day. We were playing in Hamburg, and they're based in Hamburg. We were playing this small show in Hamburg, and these two guys turned up and said, "Hello, we're from Topeka Records, and uh, can we have a chat?" And we had a chat, and then that was it, really. So pretty soon after that, we signed to them. We were actually when we reformed in two thousand eleven, we did two records the first two records were on our own label and i was running it and it was a really difficult thing to do so i was i was really loving it that we would be on a label yes and they're they're kind of like a classic english label from the early 80s they're a sort of very band orientated um indie label and they're, they're they say indie label but they're quite big they're very big in fact but they're they get, themselves did... Was that a, a fantastic boost for you to sort of be able to sort of leave the admin to somebody else? And yeah, then just... definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, it was just not possible. Because I know, you know, the, the big thing about it's not just manufacturing and distributing, but also having a full press department and, and people around the world that they, that they hire to do their press and things like that. It's just, there's nothing like it. You know, it's fantastic. Yes, it does sound like a glorious period. But then you've always had these kind of, I suppose, personnel change. Personnel sounds like a company. I suppose it is like a company. What was it like when you, um, when Lester left the band? Well, the thing is, is as you were saying about fans have gone through their own personal journeys and and band members do as well. And, um, you know, sometimes it's the case, it's not not the case with Lester. But it's just sometimes the case that they get to a certain point where I'm doing most of the writing and they might not like what I'm writing anymore. It's not the same music that they were, we were doing when we first formed the band. And also the style of stuff that I was doing and his commitment to a life like that and stuff like that. It's just fans don't understand it, but things change, you know, within people and you just have to sort of keep you know one person has to keep going yes so did you was was it the case then that Lester just sort of wanted to have after all that period just say that's to quote Jim Morrison it just wasn't it wasn't working that's all for either of us and um I mean we're still going to do the that eligible bachelor's gig where we're playing the whole album we're going to do it with him in three weeks time and I've got the first rehearsal coming up this weekend so we're still working together, but with the new stuff, I mean, we've gone on to having keyboards on stage and it's just much more appropriate, you know, to the new song. Yes. So who's playing keyboards now? It's, it's a girl called Athenaeron and she was in, a um, long time ago, she was in this Newcastle band called Sleepy People and she, she's just really been teaching music for the past 15 years or so, 20 years. So she's a real find. She's brilliant. Yes. So how did you discover her? Well, I, I happened to be a good friend of the guy who was in this Newcastle band. And I asked him and he said, well, try her. So that was it. 
the uh, and, and what was it so when you got to your first rehearsal with with the new lineup did that feel interesting and exciting yeah it was yeah 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 and it's it's always and there will always be slight changes in the lineups you know and that's just the way it goes and and i can't explain it really it's just it's a matter of commitment you know because we're not really <coughs> for the others at least this isn't a profession it is for me because you know i get royalties and things like that and I, I can manage but for the others it's really a labor of love and sometimes um sometimes they can't do it or they want to do something else they yes want to be in another band or they just don't want to be in a band and the way it is Oh, that is a quite quite. I mean, I mean, thinking of Bowie, he would often sort of change his lineups a bit for various reasons. Does it feel a little bit now that you are, you know, it, the baton's firmly in your hand and it's going to be, you know, your songwriting? Does it feel a little bit more interesting going forward now with the band that you, you know, you can basically do anything you want? <laughs> well, it is actually it because it's less stressful. Because if I have the right people around me and I give them an enormous amount of leeway to express themselves and we just discuss what's going to happen and I just don't have to worry about things anymore. I just have working with the right people, less worry and everyone just expresses themselves and they, you know, they can do and they have to learn the older songs and maybe rework the parts of the older songs. But as I said, live work is completely different it's a question of just like doing a, a a stage run as an actor you know you learn the part and you just and it's fun thing to do yes the creative stuff goes on with the new albums and in, in the studio and they just enjoy it it's not i'm not um uh a hard taskmaster i don't overtly tell them what to do we just kind of go in the same direction and getting that feeling of all going in the same direction is really what what is is ideal. It's perfect. You know? Yes. And how did you find? Because you toured America about three years ago. Yeah. And I guess you've been a few times. What was it like in two thousand nineteen? Was it two thousand nineteen you went? Yeah. yeah, I think so. Two thousand eighteen or nineteen. It was brilliant. And and we we planned to go back there two years ago on two tours, but of course we had to cancel everything. We lost a huge amount of money in the process, but we'll we'll hopefully still go back there next year. Um, yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. I mean, America's our biggest audience because mm. one of the things that w did define the early monochrome set is that we had a, a very American sound, I think, with the guitars and things like that, and the, the melodies constantly into, into weaving around the, the I mean, the, 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 there's, there's songs on Strange Boutique where the bass is playing a, a melodic line, the guitar is playing a melodic line, the vocals are doing melodic lines. So it's, it's a complex sort of thing but it's very influenced by late 60s psychedelia yes i mean I was, I was trying to describe to a friend about the new album they said how do you describe it and it's like well it's quite a, a sophisticated it's a very sophisticated al yes yeah, a sophisticated sound with quite a lot of de depth on lyrics i mean it was really hard to describe actually <laughs> you know it's a bit like you know it is there was something you know because i mean it's different to the jazz butcher's last album but there was again a depth to the to, to the albums and work you can tell that both of you and pat really worked at what you were doing well it's lyric orientated songs that's what it is and that's what really gives you longevity with any uh, singer songwriter is when you write good lyrics, you just keep, you can keep going until you're dead, basically. 
But if it's just entirely dependent on music, you run out of ideas. Yes. You've got to have something to say, you know. That's why Dylan keeps going and and um, why anybody which is lyric-oriented or is stuff, it's just uh, whatever. I can't think Do you, I mean, so with, with this, with the new album that's just come out, this obviously, I say obviously, it might not have been, was it kind of conceived during the lockdown period? Oh, yes. It was your lockdown album. Because yes. actually, apart from having to miss the tour, the lockdown kind of almost worked okay for you, didn't it? Because you had an album out in, was it 19? That's, well, yeah, we had, a, well, it, it didn't, it didn't. We had an album, the previous album called Fabula Mendes, which was released just before the lockdown. Um, so we weren't able to properly promote it. And then this next album, I just wanted to write it and get it out of my system. And so it was released, you know, to, if you like, what towards the end of last year um, and the beginning of this year, I can't remember which. And I knew that we wouldn't be able to properly promote that either. So there's going to be a bit of a, normally it's about 18 month gap between albums with us. It's going to be a bit longer because we've got two, especially in America, we've got two albums to promote now. Yes. Um, but in, in a way, it's been okay, you know, because it's it, it sold enough records anyway to pay for itself. So, so we just wanted to do that. And I think it's kind of not right not to, not to work. I think if you can work, and as soon as we thought, yeah, we can actually get a, we can get a few gigs and not have to cancel them. Well, we did have to cancel a couple in, in July. Just go out and play, even if the audience is lower, the, the level of attendance is lower, and it has been beneath the high commercial level, the level of audience level of indie bands has been lower. Yes. Go out, go out and do it if you can, and, and the audience has just been incredibly appreciated. That we're there and we're, we're appreciative that they made it as well. It's been a really good feel good factor to the whole thing. Because I could imagine, because obviously your early work, and we all remember some of the, the sort of indie disco classics. I mean, you must appeal to quite a different audience now, because it's like I was saying, the, the sound is that much more sort of, sort of thoughtful and sophisticated. Do, do you have you sort of picked up new, new fans? I think we have picked up new fans and I think that actually essentially it's not that different essentially because it's really poetry. It's poetry put to music and essentially it's in that same area. It's not a very highly visited area of songwriting. There's not a lot of songwriters who write such rich, lyrically rich uh, songs. So I would have said it's still in the same area of, of you know, Jet Set Jones and things like that. It's not really that much different. It's just a, this last album, just more serious, that's all. So it's still within the area of restoration poetry or something like that, you know, where there was, there was a lot of variety. But it's just a lot of, you know, and I think that that's nice to stay in that position. We don't really care about anything else. We've got our, our niche. But the niche is a quite a strong one, and it appeals to people who want to hear more than just stuff about kissing girls on the top of a bus. Yes. Oh, we don't want to hear that. No, not at our age. <laughs> <laughs> that would be too much. But yeah, so with with a song, does it come? Do you stick with a song until it's complete, or do you start and then have to occasionally put it to one side and and work on another song? I mean, how yeah, does that? Sometimes, yeah, sometimes it works like that. So quite often it works like. I will start a song off and I, if I don't complete a lot of it, 
quite quickly and sometimes it just all comes out at once and it sounds like it's really been mightily thought about but it isn't it comes out complete um and but sometimes i just have to i kind of write some verses and i think that chorus is terrible so i just leave it you know <laughs> and i come i come back to it later because i might have an idea for a chorus or something like that is it i guess it's a bit like painting you know you you paint a, a scene or uh you know still life or a group of people like a Velasquez painting or something and you think well what's gonna go there i don't know what's gonna go there i'm just gonna leave it put 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 a a cloth over it and i'll come back to it in a couple of weeks you know yes absolutely so that kind of thing you know and didn't did you did you have a sort of particular sort of sonic or musical kind of instrumentation with the lyric or did did you work that out with the band that's a, that well um i generally i kind of demo all the stuff with guitar and vocals and sometimes i put a few lines on it which <coughs> very occasionally <clears throat> there'll be essential lead lines keyboard line or something like that but generally I, I leave it up to the band to come up with stuff and we discuss it you know but no the whole song is kind of complete when i demo it like the the intro the verse the, the middle eight or whatever and then we just take it from there yes and who and who was the producer and where did you record this album the producer was me and a guy called john clayton who's the engineer and he has a studio in crystal palace in south london and we'd recorded quite a lot with him. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, and uh, I had actually, the previous band that I had, Scarlet's World, did a lot with him as well, uh, when he had a studio in Brixton. So, so we, and we just worked together incredibly well. Yes. And he knows the way I work and, and, you know, it just all works really fantastically. How did did you find, I mean, because it's obviously an unusual period, how did you sort of find that sort of period of lockdown in, in sort of for your own creativity or your own mental health? Um, it was fantastically revealing about humanity. I'm just going to get some water. Just yes, don't, let's, let's get a drink of water. Ooh. Oh, dear. <laughs> Don't die on me. This would be a oh. disaster. Oh, it's absolutely uh, it's hot and dry. Yes, it's hot and dry. Yeah, Ooh. so revealing. In what way was it revealing? Well, this is difficult because, you know, if I say what I think, there's going to be a few million people <laughs> who aren't going to like it. Um, I can't believe so many people went with the flow, personally. I can understand why a lot of them did it, because for some people, I'm, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, but I, I didn't get jab. That's partly because my wife is a pharmacist and formerly a research pharmacist, so she knew everything of what it was all about. Right. She, she even knew the people who had set up the, um, uh, what's it called, the, the uh, Pasteur Institute in Hanoi, who had it involved in it. But actually, I know what's going to be revealed in the next two or three months about the origin of it. 
um, <laughs> which is not in China at all, it's, it's in Europe, and how it was disseminated amongst the population. But I find it really difficult to believe that people took on spec things which were being said to them by people who were had so many shares in those pharmaceutical companies. How can you believe someone like that? So when, you know, firstly, the, the Neil Ferguson, who's been wrong about everything in the past, as soon as he gets wheeled out, you know something's going wrong. <laughs> something's up. But the guy who has just been lying for so many previous times gets hired again, and then says that again, and you think, well, this, there's something really wrong going on here. And <laughs> someone comes to, to <coughs> one of those people, those three people, I can't remember who it was, <clears throat> tells you to get the Pfizer jab. Then you, all you have to do is a really simple search on the internet to find out he's got 300 grand's worth of shares in Pfizer. So you know there's something wrong. So all along, I did the tiniest bit of research and found out who was... Who's the ultimate controller of these things? Okay, so it's Bill Gates, the, the biggest shareholder. And then he's also the guy that's giving whoever the leader of the Labour Party huge amounts of money. And then giving this other guy huge amounts of money. You think, well, everything is wrong here. It's just all wrong. So my wife actually predicted exactly what the vaccine was going to be. mRNA. She said, that's what they're going to try. They've tried it before. It's a complete failure. They're going to try it again because they've got loads of stock of it. That's what happened. So obviously I didn't take it because I got COVID <clears throat> in March 9, 2019. I got COVID. It was a nasty thing. It was obviously not, nothing like anything that I'd seen before, and it felt like if it was manufactured. There was something weird about it, strange symptoms. But I got over it. As soon as I got over it, I knew I'd never get it again. Right. And that was it. It's my, my body... Is the result. I said this once to someone who was a real believer, and she laughed, burst into laughter in my face. I don't quite understand why. I'm going to say it again. It's a bizarre thing to say, but my body is the product of several million years worth of inherent cross species inherited development. It's not been, it wasn't born yesterday. My immune system and my health system is essentially not that different to a dinosaur's. It's been in development for millions of years. It can handle itself. Let's go with the body first and mm. then see what happens. That's not an irrational thing to say. You can actually handle it. And I did handle it. They immediately took the vaccine. And that's it. Then, then I explained to people wearing a mask doesn't prevent viral transmission. It says so on the side of the box. She gets this stuff in the pharmacy. On the side of the box, it says, for operators only. That means it's meant to be worn by nurses and doctors and surgeons to prevent shit, piss, all sorts of bodily fluid getting in the face of the people who are operating on you or dealing. Mm. <coughs> Viruses can easily walk, go through it. They can walk through it. Viruses are minute, they're microscopic, they can go through any mask. Unless it, if you want to know the sort of mask that can't go through a mask, uh, a, a mask that prevents viral transmission, you look at the people working in the P4 labs, they have this 
is these like spacesuits. <laughs> That's what you have to wear if you don't want to get a virus. You have to wear a proper chemical laboratory, full on. That's what you wear. Yes. You don't wear a tiny little cloth mask. It doesn't make any difference. It was all to do with control, to do with putting people down. And then you have to go down these rabbit holes of finding out why they want to do that. Is it really the case that they're trying to kill loads of people, blah, blah, blah. Then that's a different thing. The first song on that album, All Hallow Tide, is about the way those people see humanity. They see them as being human, therefore inferior. They see themselves as being inhuman and superior. That sums up the ruling classes of the past few hundred years. Yes. But what was the ultimate goal? Because obviously... It, was part, it wasn't really to moralise and it wasn't actually particularly to inform so much as just saying how one person, me, <coughs> survived. Which is really what, I mean, you know, there is observational... Um, there's an observational quality about that. Ballad of the Flaming Man is about um, the spreading of things in the air, and all the Hanatides is about them. Too. But a lot of it is to do with um, trusting yourself, finding your own soul, and backing into it, and being more powerful, and not really going with the the, the cube of society, this block where you just say yes to everything because you're an individual. And once you sign on to collective thoughts, you find that you find yourself more powerful because suddenly you've been given this power of, of owning civilization, which you didn't have before as an individual. Because mm-hmm. most people are surrounded by a civilization they don't understand because they themselves haven't contributed anything to it. They don't really understand things like electroplating and glass and plastics, and et cetera, et cetera magnetism but once you sign on to this collective this collective you own it but the 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 downside of it the payment is you've got to do what the collective does you've got to take that that drug you've got to and you've got to force the drug onto other people you've got to you wear that mask and force that mask wearing and, and people have tried with me force that mask wearing on other people and um not ask any questions Yes, so there was a period of time just not too long ago where in Australia they were bringing in FEMA camps, which is essentially concentration camps for unvaccinated people. And they had tried bringing it in, but it didn't go anywhere. But that was the next thing around the corner for me to be put into some kind of concentration camp and bled slowly. <laughs> because the one thing I do have is I have type O blood unvaccinated, and none of the elites, as far as I know, have had the vaccine. They've all had placebos, so they could do with some of my blood. I'd end up being like a bear, you know, right. bears that kept there um, in China that are kept in cages and, and, you know, have something from their gallbladder or something extracted once in a while for some foodstuffs or something. But I think that, that that's really what's planned. I know this sounds completely insane, but I'm, I'm hopeful that everything will change um, and it will be an awful lot better. And I, I, I hope that people realise what they've done. 
And a lot of them will have good excuses because they had to do that in order to keep their job or they had to do that in order to travel to, to meet their ailing grandmother or something like that. I know, I know all that, but there are people who don't have an excuse. And there are all those doctors who did this stuff and they should go all go to prison, I think. <laughs> I don't want them to die, but you know, I think a lot of them and and the people behind it, the money people, well, they should all go to prison. <coughs> and it, it doesn't matter who's in charge at the moment in, in this country. I think a lot of stuff is going to flip. The financial system is going to flip and the political system is going to flip. And I think it's all going to be for the better. And humanity is going to come out of this next year much, much better much better position because the plan of doing all this has just not worked i don't think in my opinion despite the monkeypox being around the corner i think it's all going to be thrown out and we're all going to come out of this really well yes my god i mean that's amazing and neil ferguson prison neil ferguson should be shot <laughs> he, he's also he's he's also financed by the bill and melinda gates foundation it's on their website if people could be bothered to go and see on their website i mean it's like it, it was only about six weeks ago the guardian newspaper ran this article about how how dangerous it is for mothers to breastfeed i couldn't believe it when i read it Blimey. then i found out that they were paid 3.2 million dollars by bill and melinda gates foundation to write that article that's the level of corruption that's going on that you the papers and the mainstream media that you came to trust like the bbc and the guardian they have been most terribly corrupted by this money and they've just gone with the money. I can't believe that they did it. Yes. So so with the track called Hello, Save Me, was that? That's different. Hello, Save Me is to do with back in 1981. No, no, no. Back in 1986, just after the first monochrome set version, I released a song called Reach for Your Gun. And that was about animal experimentation. And I gave the royalties to the British Union for the abolition of vivisection. And about two weeks after it was released, uh, the Animal Liberation Front rang me up. Animal Liberation Front rang me up and said, thanks for the donation. And by the way, we've made you an honorary member. So I found that really fascinating that uh, I'd given it to the BUAV, but it was the ALF that actually run me out. From the point, because the Animal Liberation Front were either a banned organisation or considered almost a terrorist organisation. Yeah. For about a year after that, I, my phone was tapped. So, um, and you could hear it in those days. You'd pick up a phone and you hear this weird sort of echoey noise. So, um, and the person on the other end obviously never made a noise. So I started having conversations with them. Because I thought, <laughs> what, what a boring life they must be just sitting there with a pencil and paper in a tent somewhere, um, just having to listen and write down things. So I just started conversing with them, one way conversations. Anyway, that's what that song is about. Oh, fantastic. That's an amazing story behind that song. I would have never. <laughs> God, it's not God. obvious. It's but not obvious. No, no, in the book. I, I, in between the chapters, I'm writing a bit about the lyrics to expand on some of the meanings behind some of these things. So, yes, absolutely. So the first two songs are sort of COVID related. Yeah. But by my deep shoreline. My deep shoreline is about being having a soul 
and not being affected by things that you've decided aren't quite right. That's having an in, a core in yourself, which is quite strong, right? just not going to go with the flow. And if you decide to not go with the flow, you could never be touched. So that's, that's finding your own power to be able to do that. People have kind of lost that ability because they haven't grown up. For example, in the 70s, growing up just wandering the streets, mm. not being on the internet all the time, actually wandering around with danger and learning how to become an individual and a strong individual in yourself, <coughs> which young people don't so much now. Yes, amazing. And Moon, I'm just curious now, Moon Garden, How? what's the, the kind of meaning behind this? Oh, well, that's, uh, that's, that's not exactly to do with the lockdown either. Moon Garden is, is just a kind of uh, necrophiliac fantasy. Fair enough. It, there's Fair always, enough. A, yeah. always got to be one on an album. <laughs> yeah, there's, it's, uh, it's the black sheep of the songs. Yes, I know. That's, there's, there's always one. Really in the wrong town. That's really about now. It's about um, that video that I think the World Economic Forum had made about you will be you will learn nothing and you will be happy. Have you seen that video? Mm. I said, oh, it's a fantastic thing. It's it's about not never, Klaus Schwab made it and he was, you know. so it's it's about, you're not gonna have any money at all. You're not gonna earn anything. You're just be, gonna be given a kind of basic wage. You're gonna be given the food, foods to, that's the plan. I mean, it's just, it's, it's very open. Yes. I, can, I can give you a link if you want. But there you go. That's that's. It's just that people don't seem to watch these things. I, I watch. Really a, I watch. I watch a lot of Adam Curtis documentaries. Yeah, but yeah. but um, so what was the what was this one that you mentioned? Film. This was. It was called. Um, I hope it's still on YouTube, but it might have to be on Rumble or something like that. It's you will own nothing, and you will be happy. You will own nothing and you will be happy. And that's the title of the video. Yes. The video was made, as far as I know, by the WEF, World Economic Forum. And that's the future plan for humanity, most of humanity, is that they are basically, it's a kind of a 1984 situation where they were given everything and um, you, you don't cook at home either. You have to, or if you want to go for a bicycle ride, which is what Wrong Town alludes to. Um, <laughs> You have to kind of, you have to request a bicycle and you're given a bicycle for a day and then it's taken away again. Blimey. You're Jesus. then allowed, yeah, exactly. You don't own the bicycle, but you can you can ride it. And, but it's, it's, that's what they plan on. It, yes. it's, a lot of this stuff, people think I'm, yeah, they, they think I'm a conspiracy theorist and I am a conspiracy theorist because there is a conspiracy. But it's all there in black and white. If you go to some of these people, you go to the Pfizer website, it, it, it's a full documentation of how dangerous the bloody vaccine is and nobody ever goes there. So you have to actually wait for this, This um, you have to wait for the media to be flipped. And at some point, I don't know when, when they're going to flip it. Because yes. It, uh, and just Box of Sorrows. Box of Sorrows. Clues in the title. It's one of, <laughs> it's one of the main financiers of this is hidden in open view in the title. It's about human trafficking, child trafficking, genocide. 
And again, that, that's something that will come out, especially things that they've they found in Ukraine and all over the world, um, child trafficking, terrible, terrible things. I've seen some videos and you wouldn't, you can't unsee them once you've seen them. But the things they do to, to kids, you know, amazing. So that's really what that song is about. And the middle eight of that song is fantastic because I asked Alice, who sung it, just go in and wail like, and you're going to have a lot of people, that you're going to be doing a lot of wailing over yourself. And wail as if you are an annoyed spirit, which has been released from this. And she did a fantastic job anyway. God, Jesus Christ. I mean, I'll have to listen back to all this album now with totally different ears. And Resplendent in a Darkness. Resplendent in a Darkness is about how people who try to control humanity can ultimately not control nature. It's not possible. Nature will always be resplendent. It will always be. It will always win. Humanity will come and go. Yes. Nature will always be there. It will. The planet will be there. And just lastly, in a change of personal design. In a chapel of personal design. Oh, chapel. <laughs> it's about it's about individuality and making your own personal religion and your own personal morality and not joining a group. Listening to groups and listening to what they have to say, listening to what everyone has to say, but actually coming up with your own thing, you know, and just not not imposing it on other people, just living by example. Yes, that's good. Can I just hit, I just want to tell you a story, but I'll hit pause. Just hope it comes. Yeah. So yes. Well, you know, it's, it's been it's been bad for an awful lot of people. Uh, yes, it has it has you know been fatal for some. Yes, this is true. So how did you manage then with with such a sort of consciousness during that period? Or the, you know, how did you manage to not go slightly insane yourself? Because I have something inside me which keeps me going. It's that thing which I told you about, which you'd have to, you'd have to read the book. You'll be the first person to get the PDFs. Uh, Excellent. Well, we'll be looking for. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, it's it, what it does. It keeps you going. My vocation, my the reason why I'm here is to write songs, and it's like it just tells me don't. Don't start straying off there too much and don't start doing this and doing something. You keep going and you just keep. And because I'm not a group person anyway, so even when it comes to, you know, the anoms and things like that, I'm not going to completely fall in with what a whole load of other people are going to say. I'm just going to keep going because my, the reason why I'm here is to write songs for people, other people, and it's just to entertain them, to please them. That's my whole reason for existence. And I'm just not going to go too far down this way. And I'm definitely not going to preach to other people. I'm going to inform them. And if mm -hmm. they're mad, that's fine. But I'm here for a reason. And just don't lose your ability down some dark tunnel somewhere. Just keep yourself away from it and just, you know, assess it as it comes in. That's why I didn't go mad. I think. Oh, blimey. Is there a, is there a particular book that, that changed your life or has been an amazing inspiration that's kind of you've turned you turn to for sort of moments of no I don't, I don't think so I think that probably when I get really annoyed I play old video games <laughs> I just blast my way through a, a crowd of goblins you nice know, that's really that's that's the way to do it it's just blast your way 
across space. And then you feel okay afterwards, you know. <laughs> or, just, or just go out, you know, sort of go out into Kew Gardens is nice, even though it's expensive. But the reason why it's nice is because it's expensive. So there's not, it's not crowded for the people <laughs> to go there once a year or something. And it's just to try to connect a little bit with what nature you can in London, which is not always that easy. Um, and just have a sense of humour as well. It has been rather difficult because like, I'm one of the few people, along with my wife, who actually believe in this, what I've just been saying, to most other people, don't want to know. Mm. I find that really, really strange. They just don't want to, not interested at all. No, 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 he's completely mad. And okay. <coughs> so you God, go. you've, you've had an existential moment, haven't you, really? Yeah. It's been interesting. But... On a good point, you feel positive about the future. Absolutely. I feel positive in, in a funny way because I, I feel that um, both society and governance is going to become much, much more local. There's going to be much less of the top-down um, uh, governments, especially in America, but also in Europe, where you're just told what to do by unelected peoples, you know, like, for example, uh, Van, Van what whatever her name is, who's just really a dictator. And it's just going to, there's going to be a lot less administration, a lot less government, there's going to be a lot less taxes, if any taxes at all, there might not be taxes, essentially, there's going to be a way around taxation, I think, because um, you don't need it. You need national insurance to keep the, the certain things going in this country, but you don't need all those other things because they just they just use it for something else, you know. So we're just going to get rid of this massive load of corruption. And as far as the music business, showbiz goes, it's going to be much more local and smaller. Mm. I hope there's going to be less manufactured bands. There's going to be better education system as well. And I think that that's going to lead to a greater power, regional power, artistic regional power, where there's going to be um, a greater freedom for younger bands to get places and to get people out, you know. There's going to be a, a sense of, no longer a sense of danger when you go out. There's going to be a sense of safety and a sense of happiness. That's what I feel. God, there's, there's, yes. Well, and the next album, will it reflect this? Well, I'm going to... Uh, I've got two really, I don't know as yet, because I can never tell what I'm going to write about, but I've got to um, not do another album for a little bit longer, because we've still got those two albums we're trying to promote. Oh, yes, we that's true. Changed. We've still got to play in Europe, we've got to play in America, we've got to go, go to Japan as well. So we've got an awful lot to do next year, so it's going to be a bit of a six-month delay, and I have no idea what I'm going to write about, because I don't know what's going to happen in the next few months. Yes. There's going to be a big change before the end of the year, so I want to see what happens for us. And the book, when's that planned? I don't really know. I'm writing at the moment, and I hope that, that it can come out sort of vaguely, possibly middle of next year, something like that. I yes. think, it's, in a way, it's going to be fascinating reading. Well, it's fascinating writing about it. Well, yes, absolutely. No, it's, a, it's an in, in, intriguing subject. I mean, on your, on your sort of, you talked about, vibrations is there anything that you turn to when you need some form of either physical spiritual mental well-being no i don't i just i mean i have my own 
I'm just lucky that I've got that thing. I cannot describe how powerful it is, but I just don't think, I mean, the older I get, the less, and I go through really short periods of depression, which I think are just normal. And I know that as I'm going through them, it's just, it's because I've eaten something bad or whatever, and I'll get better in a couple of days. And I do, but I don't, I, I get irritated, but I just don't get that down. I don't get that down anymore because, you know, I'm alive and I've still got a function. Yes. So, so just keep going. And I just don't, I kind of don't think I need anything extra. So I know some people do and that, that's, but I just, I'm lucky in a way that I've got this driving taskmaster inside me that's just keeping me on a particular path. Even yes. if it's not at the moment functioning because it's not creating at the moment, but still it's, I am its servant. I mean, I mean, just briefly, if you were, if you could have said something to your 16 year old self starting out, is there any, is that anything that you would have whispered and just said, oh, that's, that would have been a good thing to have done? No, I, I, I people sometimes ask me, ask me, have you ever made any mistakes and could you ever change anything? And I say no, because everything you've ever done in your life, at the time you did it, you thought it was the right thing to do. And you can't remember exactly what brought you to making that decision. You can't remember all the circumstances around you at the time, at that particular age when it was 16 or 23 yes. or 34. You can't remember all the things, whether it was a good or bad decision to make. It's just part of life. It's just like your journey through life. And it's brought you to this point and you can't do anything about it now anyway. And had you actually tried, if you tried to go back and went for perfection, you might have got it really badly wrong because there's no such thing as perfection anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it's just best to accept where you are and try to go in the right direction from where you are. Yeah, this is this is this is a good thing. Otherwise, you beat yourself up. It'd be yeah. a disaster. <laughs> it would be a disaster. Well, look, thank you ever so much. And God, now I've now I've got even more insight into the the new album. I'll um, I'll listen to it with more attentive ears and yeah. and sort of take more notice of the lyrics. But um, I still think it was yeah, the last couple of albums have been amazing. So um, yes, it's all good. But thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this. And if you want, I can always send you the link, and you can always use it on your social media platform sites. Thank you. Yeah, well, it's but, been a great pleasure. Uh, yeah, and I do believe you're also coming to Norwich, aren't you? Very soon. Is it Norwich? Norwich. I hope you do, but I don't think we are at the moment. Oh, no, you came to Norwich recently, didn't you? A few years ago. You did. I'd very much like to come back to Norwich. Fantastic. Yes, you've got Sourbridge, Bristol, Guildford. Yeah. London. Nothing, nothing. I mean, Norwich or Colchester or anything like that would be fantastic to play, but we'll still try. We'll get something next year, I'm sure. Yes, absolutely. People, people are desperate. Anyway, look, thank you ever so much. Take care. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, Take care. Bye-bye. And that, dear listener, just in case you didn't notice, it's the end of the interview. Thank you ever so much to Beard for giving me the time for that. This has been the C86 Show, David Eastall. If you want to contact me for some nice reason, uh, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. You'll find me there, thereabouts, lurking in the shadows. And all these uh, interviews have been archived, aren't you lucky? Uh, you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, or Podbean. There you go. That's life. Right. Have a great, great week. Stay safe.